Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Psalm 33. This psalm has no ascription. Some think that it was originally part of a set along with Psalm 32, which was written by David. But we can't be sure, and it doesn't terribly matter. Ultimately, it was inspired by God and given to the people of Israel as an aid to corporate worship. It is by classification a hymn of praise. The Tyndale Old Testament commentary says here, If the purest form of a hymn is praise to God for what he is and does, this is a fine example. Closed quote. I would concur with that assessment entirely. Structurally, Psalm 33 is fairly straightforward. There's a call to worship in verses 1 to 3, followed by a middle section reflecting upon the praiseworthy attributes of God, followed by three verses of thanksgiving and prayer at the end. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Some commentators suggest that this psalm was originally designed to be sung antiphonally, with the worship leader singing verses 1 to 3, and then the choir, perhaps in parts, singing verses 4 to 19 in the middle, and then the worship leader again singing the closing three verses, or perhaps the congregation as a whole, hard to tell. Now, obviously, it's difficult to prove such a thing, but if it didn't happen that way, it probably should have. It, it really fits the flow of the psalm very well, and it would have sounded glorious. Certainly, verses 1 to 3 constitute the call or the summons to worship. God's people have to be stirred up to worship. We don't worship by accident. Worship has to be a decision, a choice, and a habit, or it simply does not happen. David Dixon, the old Scottish Bible commentator, says here, there is no exercise whereunto we have more need to be stirred up than to praise. Such is our dullness, closed quote. Such is our dullness. We'll come back to that. For now, I just want you to notice that praise befits the upright. The Hebrew word for upright means straight or right. So if you're healthy, if you're right and straight and normal in terms of your original design as a human being, then praise ought to flow right out of you. That's what the verse seems to be saying. C.S. Lewis picks up on that. He says, Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Closed quote. I like that. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. It just bubbles up and comes flowing out of hearts and mouths that are healthy. But of course, we aren't healthy. We aren't right, are we? And so praise is often lacking and needs to be stirred up, as Dixon says, because of our dullness. So that's what the worship leader is doing here. Shout for joy. Give thanks to the Lord, people. Sing a new song. Play something celebratory to him on stringed instruments. 
Of course, if you can't play an instrument or carry a tune in a bucket, there's still something for you to do. Joseph A. Alexander, the well-known Oriental and Biblical literature professor, writes here concerning that phrase, shout for joy. He says, the Hebrew verb, according to the etymologists, originally means to dance for joy and is therefore a very strong expression for the liveliest exaltation, close quote. All right, so if you can't sing, if you can't play an instrument, you can dance. You can raise your hands, you can move your body in lively exaltation. And why wouldn't you? Praise befits the upright. In verse 4, we begin to move into the middle section of the psalm, the meditation and reflection upon some of the praiseworthy attributes of God. I found Peter Craigie's outline for this middle portion to be particularly helpful. He sees four subsections, with verses 4 to 9 focused on praise of the Lord's word, verses 10 to 12 focused on praise of the Lord's plan, verses 13 to 15 focused on praise of the Lord's eye, and then verses 16 to 19 focused on praise of the Lord's might. And I think there's a fair bit of warrant for that division. Verses 4 to 9, then, have us focused on praise of the Lord's word. The psalmist says, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Now, interestingly, in verse 4, it says that the word of the Lord is upright, using the same Hebrew word that was used in verse 1, where it said that praise befits the upright. That's the word yeshar. So the word of the Lord is yeshar, it's upright. And therefore, as we choose to sit under the word of the Lord, we are made yeshar. We are made upright. The word restores us to our original health and dignity. And of course, that makes sense because the word of God was the agent of creation back in the beginning. God spoke and the world came into existence. Vayomer Elohim. And God said, you hear that again and again and again in the original creation narrative. So the word of God is the agent of creation. And it's also, we learn here, the agent of recreation. The word of God is the unnormed norm. It is the thing that can't be measured, but that measures all of us. It is the standard. And it doesn't just tell us what we should be and what we are not. It makes us who we ought to be and who we want to be. It is absolutely transformative. James 1.27 says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. The word of the Lord is upright, and it makes upright. That's what the Bible is saying here. Thanks be to God. So the word of the Lord is upright. It is true. It is faithful. It is an expression of his righteousness and justice. It is the means of creation and recreation. Therefore, verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. In verses 10 to 12, we begin to focus on God's plan. Peter Craigie says here, 
Whereas creation rests upon the divine word, history rests upon the divine plan. Closed quote. All right, let's hear about that. Verse 10 says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. This is the doctrine of God's providence. God is active in history. He is the God of creation, but that doesn't mean that he just set things in motion and then went off somewhere into some corner of the universe. No, he involves himself in the outworking of a coherent plan. He turns things this way and that. He lifts some up and he casts others down. He is the God of creation and he is the God of history. That's what these verses are saying. And we see that doctrine repeated again and again and again in the Bible. Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Psalm 147, verse 6. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. And of course, this is seen in the New Testament as well. Mary sang about how he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate, Luke 1, 52. The Apostle Paul spoke about this as well in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's providence. God is working a plan. It's a long plan, but the arc of the plan moves inexorably toward the end of our eternal good and his eternal glory. Praise the Lord. Now, in terms of verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. We have to remember here at this point in, in salvation history, the church and the nation were one and the same. Israel was the church. They were the covenant community, the people of God. And Israel was a nation. So the psalmist couldn't have said this any other way. But we need to be careful today in terms of how we apply this verse. W.S. Plumer says helpfully here, Both clauses refer to the Jewish people, who alone at that time were as a nation acquainted with the true God and in covenant with him. But it was to the pious portion of the nation that the richest blessings came. The church is here clearly spoken of. The truth asserted is of universal application, closed quote. So really, blessed is anyone, any individual, any family, any church, any group of people whose God is the Lord. The principle is not specifically applicable to nations. If there was a Christian nation anywhere, it would be. But the application most obviously is to any person of faith. All the blessings of God are yes and amen in Christ now, according to 2 Corinthians 1.20. So blessed is anyone who is in him. Thanks be to God. Verses 13 to 15 have us focusing on the eye or the oversight of God. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The emphasis here is on the all-seeing omniscience of God. 
Notice the repeated use of the word all. He sees all the children of men. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He watches over all the people he has created, and he observes all of their deeds. All, 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 all. He sees it all. He makes judgments now, and he records things for judgment later. Now, what's interesting is that this all-seeing omniscience was actually a cause for praise in ancient Israel. For many of us today, I suspect it would be a cause of dread. We're not sure we want God to see all of what we're doing. But that's because our sins, generally speaking, are the sins of rich, happy, peaceful people. They are sins of neglect and overindulgence. But if you don't happen to be at the top of things, if you live at the bottom, if you are constantly threatened and abused and taken advantage of, then this is, in fact, very good news. It is helpful and calming and life-giving to know that God sees. He sees what has been done to you. He saw it, and he wrote it down in a book that will be opened on Judgment Day, and someone will give an account for that. And that matters, and it should matter. Brothers and sisters, you will never get perfect justice down here on earth. If someone abuses you, and it is found out, even if they are fired or fined or even sent to jail, that doesn't fix it, does it? That doesn't address it. You need to know that God saw it and recorded it and will address it on the day of final judgment. There's no peace for anyone if they don't know that. Then lastly, in this middle section, in verses 16 to 19, there's a focus on God's might. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. There's a certain logical sequence to these middle subsections. Because God is the God of creation, he is also the God of history. That connection makes sense. And this connection in the last two subsections also makes sense. What would be the point of celebrating God's knowledge if he did not also have the power to execute judgment? But thanks be to God, he does. He's not just aware, he is able. He is able to overcome political oppression. He is able to overcome military might. He is able to overcome social inequality. He is able to overcome even disease and death. Praise the Lord. He will make things right, either in this life or the next, because he is God. The psalm ends now with an expression of gratitude and faith. We see that in verses 20 to 22. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. So again, if the commentators are right and this was intended to be sung in worship in an antiphonal manner, then these last three verses may have been sung as a solo by the worship leader or perhaps corporately as a congregational response. Because of who God is, we, the upright, will trust in him. We will wait for him. He is our help and our shield. We will be glad in him and trust his name forever. 
Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Sing.